Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Namihi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ, where we bring you a favourite story from the archives. Now, after 12 and a half years of making this show, I've decided it's time to stand down as host. I've had the most brilliant time making stories about New Zealand science and the environment. I've made more than a thousand, on everything it seems from wetter to ultra-cold physics. However... I won't be leaving immediately. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to revisit some of my favourite stories. I was thinking about where to start this retrospective while on holiday in Kaikoura last week, when I was treated to a completely unexpected wildlife spectacle. I was sitting in a motel, watching sunset colours over the bay, with the seaward Kaikoura range in the distance, when I started seeing shags flying towards me and disappearing overhead, There was a steady and growing stream of them. And, curious, I opened the back door and looked out, to be greeted by the sights and sounds of hundreds of shags settling onto the steep cliffs behind the motel. The cliffs are a shaggery. And yes, shaggery is a real word. It appears in the New Zealand Oxford Dictionary. So the shags, spotted shags probably, have inspired tonight's theme of Under Our Noses, about close-to-home wildlife treats. Later on, we'll hear about urban eagle rays. But first up, a shagregation, see what I did there, of stone-eating shags in Golden Bay, which is a spectacle for the early risers amongst us. Each day at dawn, but especially in midwinter, large numbers of spotted shags arrive at Tata Beach for a bit of bathing and some stone-swallowing. For 10 years, from 2009 to 2018, a group of locals, led by John Barraclough, counted and observed the shags to try and work out what was going on. With Helen Kingston and Rosemary Jorgensen as my guides, I managed to time a visit to the beach in June 2013. It was just hours after a big storm had ended, which did have me wondering if I'd be lucky enough to see any birds at all. So what's this morning like? Is it likely to be a good day, do you think? They don't like breakers very much because one of the purposes seems to be that it's a good place to dive for stones. And they always come at dawn to dive for stones. And so when it's flat calm, they can see the bottom more easily. But they still dive when when they're breakers, but they don't tend to like the breakers so much. But these are not huge breakers, so I think they'll come. And, you know, we have been getting the 1,500 kind of number. So do you two describe yourself as ornithologists or are you just interested locals? No, no, I'm, no. Not, an ornith- I'm not an ornithologist, we're, I don't know enough. <laughs> we're both members of the Ornithological Society, but yeah. no, I'm not an ornithologist, I'm a retired GP. Because we lived near and we knew about this phenomenon and Anne Graham, Forest and Bird came before we started and started counting them and observing them much more closely than anybody had before. And so a um, little group of us here decided to carry on with the observations. But you're not down here every morning? Oh, no. no. At the beginning we were doing five days a month, and now we're doing three days a month. But the five days a month there were several of us, and we were observing 
individual birds if we could, which is quite hard to do. And they're gregarious, so they tend and they dive in the water. So when they come up, you don't know <laughs> you don't know which one is that you were watching, because they don't all do the same thing. So it was mm. trying to we're trying to work out why they do it and what they're doing. Yes. And and so if you watch one bird, did it go into the water? Did it dive for more stones? Did it regurgitate the stones when it came onto the beach, or did it go back to get more? Yeah, that sort of thing. Did it land straight on the beach? Some of them land straight on the beach and pick up stones on the beach. Some of them don't pick up stones at all. I think they're just coming for company, probably. And then in the nesting time, they come and get debris for their nests. But that's not the purpose of them coming to the beach. I think that's just a bonus, really. Where are they at in their breeding season at the moment? They're nesting. They've got their breeding plumage, which is beautiful. But at this time of year, they get this glossy, dark green lower back and... They get the double crest and they get a blue-green round their eye and they get phyloplumes, which are tiny white feathers down their necks and sometimes down their lower backs as well. And they really look quite grand. And both males and females have the breeding plumage. Here's the first one coming. I see one. Quarter past. Well, I don't know how they can see stones in this light, but it gets light quite quickly. Yes, they're not particularly shy. They, um, they, don't, they don't worry that we're here, this one now. One or two of them are coming this way. That one, that one didn't come from the islands. It must have come that way. So you've really got your eye in now. Yes, you, you notice the movement. They, they fly quite close to the water. So when we count them, we count them as they land. So I can see something you can down see on one. the water. Yes, edge that's there. one on the beach yeah. already. So that's a good sign because... Um, if, if the other ones see one on the beach, they tend to come. So have the shags always been coming here and it's only just in the last few years that you've oh, no, got they, interested they, they, in them? As long as people remember around here. Um, I've talked to a lady who's 70 and, and when she was a seven-year-old, she remembers them. And Perrine Moncrief, who's famous around here for starting the Abel Tasman National Park and was an ornithologist, and she, um, we've got a long letter by her talking about the very large numbers in the Motueka side of the Abel Tasman Park. But I think the numbers have fluctuated in the past as well as in the last couple of years. But in 2009, I think when we started observing, we struck it lucky because one day there were 5,000. But we've never seen that many again. Here we are. So they've got a couple. No, they're just going to stay on the water, aren't they? They've landed right in front of us, though. That's very yes. kind of them. yes. Here's two more? Yep. yep. Yeah, and they Good. go by the light. They don't go by the tide. doesn't matter what state the tide's in. So the beach itself looks sandy, so are there stones just off out there under the water? Yes. When they regurgitate them, it's the bigger stones that you can mm. see, the little piles on the beach, because they're mm. all bigger than the, all the rest of the beach. Of course, there's never as many stone piles as the birds that come in. There's only about half as many, so... Yeah, average of half. Yes, the stones can be in quite big, about half your thumb size, or they can, they can be tiny. When Ralph Pausland analysed them, the, the, the average weight of a pile was 50 grams, and I think the average number of stones was 30 or something like that. Anyway, There's increasing but, numbers landing in front of us, yes, staying on yes. the water and diving. Yes, yes so they, they obviously, and they're diving, so they, they're obviously picking stones up. 
because there's nothing much there in the way of fish, so they're certainly not feeding. So does anyone have any ideas why they're swallowing stones? Uh-huh. <laughs> Many birds swallow and regurgitate stones, but in fact, historically, the dinosaurs did, and crocodiles do. And I think birds like poultry swallow them to aid digestion. So there's three reasons why birds and reptiles swallow stones. One is digestion, to crunch up their food, but the shags have very strong stomachs and they feed on tiny little fish, so possibly and possibly not. One that's been talked about is ballast, but I don't think there's a lot of scientific basis for ballast, like when they're diving, like a diver's belt with weight. Uh, shag weighs about a kilogram and the stone piles are 50 grams, so it's not a huge contribution. But the other reason is that we've observed them from out in the bay after they leave the beach. And unless they're actually going back to their nests, they go straight out to the fishing grounds, half of them having regurgitated. So, so they go out to the fishing grounds with empty stomachs, and you'd think if they were diving for fish they would want the ballast in their stomachs. So it seems that that's possibly not the reason. And the third reason, which we think is the most likely, is that their stomachs get infested with nematode worms, which may or may not be parasitic, and which may or may not interfere with their life. Like, they might be pathogens or they might not be pathogens. They might um, they might just live in the bird's gut and... and cohabit as lots of us have all sorts of parasites in us but they might be pathogenic and in fact they might perforate the gut and, and kill the birds so so the regurgitation could be to get rid of the nematodes and actually we've found if we're quick when we look at the stone piles that there are nematodes in the stone piles little ones always dead but something like 10% I think Rosemary yeah yes it was 10% of the piles uh, yes, had a nematode in yes. it. And but this was one of the reasons that we started getting interested is why do they do it? And um, all, all we've come up with are <laughs> more questions than answers. You can see they're doing their wing beating. We don't know why they do that either. But they get ectoparasites as well. They get, they get ticks and lice and the wing beating might be to cleanse their skin and feathers. We've got four out now. Yep. They don't like being just one. So how many did you say there were on Saturday? About 1,900. I don't think we're going to get to 1,900 today. Well, I don't know. Look, 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 look. Now we're talking. Yes, 40 50. yes, yes. There's 40 or 50 there now. Because they have to wait a while before they regurgitate. They don't just come ashore. They, they die for the stones and do their wing-beating thing sometimes. And then they come ashore, usually. But they wait for a good, maybe 15, 20 minutes before they regurgitate. So it seems that they have to let things settle. And sometimes the, the, the stone piles have got little bits of glass or shell or it's not always stones. Sometimes they're all coloured and sometimes they're nondescript. So they're really clumped up in the water from where we are. Yes, they're all rafted up. See all their little heads sticking up and then there's a growing group on the beach. Mm. Yep, and more coming in all the time. There's quite a bit of interactions going on between them between the ones standing on the beach, aren't there? Yes, they grunt. And they move around a little bit, but then they might go to sleep. They preen. You know they're going to regurgitate if their tail starts beating. 
And sometimes it seems to be an awful effort. You want to pat them on the back and say, come on now. <laughs> There's one regurgitating now in the middle. And there's a lot of preening going on. And some of them, um, like when we were doing the observations of a bird, you know, one of them, sometimes one of them would just go to sleep. You know, so you don't know quite why they came to the party just to stand there and go to sleep, but they do that too. I don't think any more are going to come today, are they? No, I think no. the bulk have come. So what, that would be about a couple of hundred maybe? Well, New Zealand doesn't do a lot of wildlife spectacles and this must be right up there, I reckon. Yes, and there's not many people know about it. Yeah, even locals. One's yeah. gone. Yeah, two. Two's gone. Yes, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Just one goes, and then mm. okay, let's go. So you see, they bypass the islands and they go straight out. And most of them go out that way. So it sort of seems that this time of day they're ready to go fishing, and off they go. Yeah, once they made the decision to go. Yeah. Yeah. And there's four left. Yeah. <laughs> Well, can we go down and yes, we wait? We'll have, go a look go down and have a look at the stones? Yep. We'll make our way down the beach to where they were standing. Yes, we varied when we've counted piles between 30% of the number of birds and 70%, I think. Some them. of them, you can see them there. That's a, mm. you know, each one is a little pile. So that but, big so one I mean, there, has that been regurgitated? Well, probably, yes, because, you know, there's, there's big ones in that one too. And there's a big one, big one there. Yeah, I mean, they're a so, good two. That's a good size. Three, isn't four centimetres long. That's a yes. really big yeah. stone for a small shave. Yes. Mostly biggish and grey, and then you'll get, you'll get a pile of tiny ones there. I'll see if I can find a nematode. Oh, okay, so it's a bit of glass. <laughs> yeah, there's a nematode there. So that's this, the thing that looks like a bit of dried string. Yeah, yeah. And they're always dead. But then possibly there's a live one that the seagulls get. You know, the seagulls would see the movement, wouldn't they, of a live one? Mm. But we've never seen live ones. So it sounds like it's a, been a good study to be involved in. Oh, it's oh, really it's interesting, yes. I mean, it's quite, it's quite nice. Um, mm. It's not that so much fun when the morning's not good, but a lovely day, you know, it's great when the sun starts, it starts getting light. And the... But as far as we know, it's unique. Uh, we, we don't know anywhere else where they congregate in such numbers and also where they do this dawn parade thing and, and regurgitate their stones and we were going to stop and then because the numbers dropped we thought well we should keep going to know whether they're going to build up again and is this part of a cycle or is this some phenomenon that they haven't encountered before so we don't know how long we'll go on but, mm. but in the meantime yeah. it's been a good team project yes oh, yes. 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 That was Golden Bay's resident shagwatchers and Birds New Zealand members Helen Kingston and Rosemary Jorgensen. During the 10 years they monitored the beach, the maximum number of shags seen declined from about 3,000 in 2009 to less than 500 in 2018. When I visited in 2013, halfway through the study, they counted 1,000 birds. Kei te mai koe ki tō tātou ao hurihuri ki reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and next up in this Our Changing World retrospective, Under Our Noses, we're off to the middle of our capital city. Specifically, I'm off to Whairepo, or Eagle Ray Lagoon. During the warmer months, the lagoon and the surrounding harbour are home to a number of eagle rays and stingrays. On a fine day, these can attract quite an admiring crowd, as I discovered on my way to meet ray experts Malcolm Francis and Tim Riding back in 2015. 
Are you taking photos of the rays? Oh, yeah, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I see. Oh, well, I thought there was a bit of bloody driftwood. What's an eagle ray? Yeah, we've seen them in the past. You stay on the bridge and you can see, like, little little black triangles floating around in the water. So you've just noticed the rays in the harbour? Yeah. Yeah, very fascinating. Don't see that often, do you, when you're walking past? So. Fired up, all right. Maybe looking for a female one. <laughs> Might be too. Yes, we were just having our lunch and spotted them just coming up and parking up and bathing in the sun. How many did you see? Six. Seven or eight now we've seen these ones. Yeah. We're at Frankett's Lagoon in central Wellington, which is right in the middle of town. It's a busy lunchtime, and we've come to look at one of the inner city's wildlife spectacles. Have you seen any rays out there, Malcolm? So far I've seen a couple just swimming around. Uh, They look like eagle rays uh, taking a tour of the lagoon. Eagle rays? How do I know that's an eagle ray? Because there's lots of other kinds of rays. We have uh, three common rays in New Zealand. Uh, Two of them are stingrays, and there's the eagle ray. The eagle ray is quite easy to tell. It has pointed wings, and it swims by flapping the wings up and down. So if people have uh, seen manta rays swimming on, on TV, it looks just like that, only much smaller. So it's an eagle that's flapping like a bird. That's right, pointed wings. And uh, the other two stingrays, they have more broadly rounded wings and they swim by undulating the wings. They don't flap them up and down. Round and ripply, and eagles flap like a bird. OK. Tim, you did your master's degree on eagle rays, didn't you? I did. I was fortunate enough to spend a year up in Northland chasing eagle rays around a number of different estuaries and coastal embayments. It's uh, nice to learn a little bit more about uh, what's going on, what they're they're thinking, what they're doing, how they're doing it. Oh, I can see one. There's one swimming across the water there. Indeed. Just under the surface, quite a small one. Love the different colour options or colour morphs that you see in these species. You can see some yellow ones, yellow, brown, sort of bluey ones. Um, there's all sorts of different colour variations. That's a fantastic view of it flying along underwater, isn't it? Yeah. That's right, the way they flap their wings. It does look more like flight than swimming. Just doing a bit of a search, would you say, Malcolm? Looks like it. It's swimming over the, uh, the sediment-covered areas on the reef and um, perhaps looking for some shellfish or crabs. Most of the time you see them up in the shallow waters like this, they're after some sort of food. And they're relatively broad in their, in their dietary requirements and they'll eat, as Malcolm was saying, crabs or, or bivalves of a number of descriptions. They'll, they'll eat them off the rocks, they'll dig them out of the sediment in estuaries and harbours. But they're also detritivores as well, so you'll, you'll find that they'll um, consume you know, dead kawai and bits and pieces that, have, uh, that are floating around. So opportunistic, really. In a lot of the northern harbours where there's a large area of sand flats, you can see at low tide that they've excavated pits that are about oh, 30 centimetres across. And they do that by taking in water from uh, the top, top of their head through uh, little holes called spiracles that are behind the eyes, and they jet that out through the gills on the underside of the body. And that just creates a a water flow that winnows away the sand and exposes any uh, shellfish and other invertebrates sitting in the the mud. Quite a fascinating process to watch when they're feeding like that because it does look quite awkward, ungainly, and there's lots of detritus in the water, lots of sand being um, elevated off the ground. But uh, it's obviously effective not just for them but for lots of um, other small fish. You often see other small fish coming to sort of feed on the remnants of, uh, of their explorations. So tell me a bit more about your research. What were you doing? So we, we really wanted to answer the question, how are these rays navigating in these, these tight, closed environments that are often highly sedimented, um, bad visibility, so they're not using visual cues to navigate around. So what is it that was driving that? And the research that we did suggested that, in actual fact, that it was a, a reotactic response. So they're, uh, essentially they're orientating to water flows um, and potentially with, uh, with tidal cycles, uh, learning how to navigate through these environments. 
and use the channels, use the, the water flow to their advantage to firstly assist them to get into the feeding areas and secondly to, to get out before the, the water disappears. Looks like we've got some sort of feeding plume over there, Malcolm. I think a, a paddleboarder just went uh, by and oh, right. uh, scared, scared one off <laughs> sitting <laughs> on the seabed. So, Gave him uh, a there's a big cloud of mud and it's, the ray has done a circle around and it's come back to exactly the same spot. Creatures of habit, it's... Um, Something that we saw up in Northland, anyways, these these rays would weeks or possibly months on end re- return to very similar areas and within harbours and estuaries to to feed, and you could almost time them by the clock as to what time they'd come through. There'd be you know, sort of a 15 or 20 minute period. I could stand in one spot and count uh, 20 to 30 of them, all within sort of 10 or 20 minutes, just moseying past you. It's quite quite unique, quite interesting. So I gather that these ones turn up here sometime in spring, September, October, and then they disappear again, I don't know, March, April. Do we have any idea what they're doing? Well, they do seem to like the warmer months and they come into the shallows where the water has warmed up under the influence of the sun. What we really don't know anything about is where they go the rest of the year. Do they hang around Wellington Harbour or are they coming from somewhere else? Uh, With the black stingrays, we used to think they came down from further north as the water warmed up in Wellington. But uh, some genetic analysis by a, a scientist has shown that uh, the population down in the southern North Island, top of the Marlborough Sounds, is quite different genetically from that found up in the Manukau Harbour, west of Auckland. So it um, looks like they don't move around a great deal. So uh, that still leaves a bit of a mystery as to where these ones are coming from. So where do rays fit in the fish world, Malcolm? Rays, uh, you can think of them as being a flattened shark. They're just like a shark and having cartilaginous skeleton. They have five sets of gills, five pairs of gills, just like most sharks do. Uh, the big difference is they're flattened dorsoventrally from top to bottom. So the gills are on the underside of the body rather than on the side of the head as they are in sharks. Uh, quite, a, quite a big difference though. Most people think of sharks as having big sharp teeth, although not all of them do. But uh, rays have flattened teeth that are a bit like paving stones. Uh, they're very powerful for crushing shellfish. Um, rather than grasping slippery fish and uh, tearing things apart like we think of sharks doing. So tell me a bit more about their breeding, they're long-lived. They've got quite a, um, quite a long-term approach to, to longevity, unlike the bony fish which often produce maybe hundreds of thousands of eggs per season. The elasmobranchs, which are the sharks and the rays, are much more the other end of the spectrum. So most of them would produce well less than 10 pups per, per year. And it might take them sort of uh, between sort of 6 and, and 12 months to gestate those, those pups. I guess the, the, the thing that I'm fascinated about their breeding is the fact that they can come out and they are 100% good to go. So how big's a baby ray? Really small, actually. The eagle rays are born at sort of between 20 and sort of 26 or 27 centimetres width, and they are sort of born in a, in a tube, if you will, but they're rolled up. The, the wings obviously stick out quite a bit, so they sort of come out like a, a kebab or something. And then they have to unfurl. That's right, yeah. Hey, how big do they get? The biggest that I've, I've seen myself here in, in, um, in New Zealand is uh, one point, I measured at 1.4 metres wide um, and I estimated her to be about uh, 60 kilos so she, she was quite big but I'm sure they get bigger than that. The uh, stingrays certainly do, the short-tailed and long-tailed stingrays historically they've been recorded at about four metres long, uh, that includes the tail which in a short-tailed ray makes up about half the length but those animals were massive. Presumably decades old, we don't know how, how old they are um, but we assume they're very long-lived 
and uh, we just don't see those big animals anymore. So um, we've probably removed most of those very big old animals from the population through catching them in nets particularly. So, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a concern that the smaller rays just don't get an opportunity to, to become really big old rays anymore. Now, I've heard that New Zealand orcas have a bit of a penchant for rays, particularly stingrays. So would eagle rays come in on their menu as well, do you think? Absolutely. I think uh, that's, that's definitely prime on their menu. And certainly in Marlborough Sounds, you see, you see a few of them being chased around. So I think the orcas have learned to be fairly mobile and rove around the country so that they surprise groups of rays on their journey. There's another one just swimming around on the far side of the lagoon. There's two there. There's, there's a pair coming close towards each other. Oh, so we've got at least three animals in here today. And, and there's one over there. Four? In front of the rowing club. Yeah. So do the rays have any way of fighting back, of defending themselves? They've got quite, a, quite an effective defence mechanism. Obviously they've got a barb at the, at the base of their tail. Some of the larger ones may actually have two or three barbs which have, uh, have grown and they can be quite long and, and, uh, and sharp, obviously. They've also got a sort of a protonaceous slime that they exude which um, can create uh, hazards with the human anatomy when it uh, enters, or, enters our flesh or, or what have you and you can create some sort of a toxic shock which obviously can lead to some pretty um, nasty complications and apparently it's very painful. But that said, they, I mean, it really is a defensive mechanism um, based at the, at the base of their tail. And as you mentioned, the um, orcas certainly chase them around, but there's other, other dolphins that do it as well, smaller dolphins. So there was actually a, a case of um, a dolphin skull recovered from a, from a washed up on a beach and it had five um, stingray barbs embedded in its skull. So whether that was the actual thing that uh, led to its death or was just a contributing factor, who knows. But clearly the dolphins also give the, uh, the rays a bit of a hard time as well. Some species of sharks also like uh, stingrays and uh, hammerheads in particular will go for them. So they'll come in during summer uh, looking for rays in the shallows and periodically you can see a hammerhead shark with uh, barbs, broken off barbs sticking up from around the jaw. I imagine the greatest risk would come from people perhaps wading in shallow water, shallow murky water, and accidentally disturbing or standing on one. Whereas here today, you, the water's clear enough you'd be able to see them pretty well. Part of my research, I spent a lot of time wandering around and walking through estuaries uh, at night in the dark, and, and you're very aware of that, uh, that you can get very, very close. In fact, you can get, obviously, right up and stand on these things accidentally if you're not careful. So the key really there is just shuffling. When you're in, when you're in water that you're not sure what you're standing on, it's good to shuffle your feet along the ground rather than taking big steps. Rays are completely unaggressive. They don't attack people deliberately. They are protecting themselves from dangers such as orcas and hammerhead sharks. If they see a shadow or some movement nearby them, they suddenly think, oh, I'm about to be attacked. It's more of a fright response. So their, their only defensive mechanism is that barb on the tail, which they can strike with very quickly. And so if they're, if they're disturbed or frightened, they might lash out and uh, hit a person who's walking through the water near them. There's a small eagle ray just swimming past in front of us. This is fantastic to have so many rays right here in the middle of the city. Yeah, I think we're pretty pretty lucky, really, in, in Wellington to have such a such an opportunity. You see a lot of people enjoying seeing them scooting around the rocks and, and eating eating food off the rocks, um, and it's nice to yeah nice that the public can get to interact with these wild animals so closely. And rays are quite sociable, if you can call it that. Uh, they get used to the presence of humans, and so these ones in here, they we've just seen. Uh, uh, dragon boats and things like that coming in and out and uh, they're used to people splashing around in their, in their swimming pool if you like 
they can easily be tamed as well and in some parts of the world and even in places like Gulf Harbour north of Auckland uh, there are tame rays that will come at particular times of day to be hand fed so they can learn quite easily that uh, humans can be a source of food. So these animals here in the lagoon, uh, they're a wonderful um, resource for Wellingtonians to come and look at and uh, it'd be really good to see them protected here so that they're not in danger of being caught. You've just come down to have your lunch and yep. there's a ray swimming past there. Do you come down here often and see the rays? Uh, yeah, I do, yeah. And I've seen a ray with a span of uh, a metre and a half. Uh, it's nice to see this wildlife here. I think we're lucky. Got to make sure we look after it. Marine reserves, all of that sort of good stuff. We're lucky. They're enjoying the sun like us. <laughs> what do you think of the ray? It's fantastic. Lots of different coloured ones too. There's patchy ones and grey ones and almost brown ones. Did you see the ray, Rickard? I saw the ray. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks to all the keen ray spotters and to shark scientist Malcolm Francis from Niwa and eagle ray expert Tim Riding from the Ministry for Primary Industries and that story first aired in 2015. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 25th of March 2021. It featured one of my favourite stories from the very extensive Our Changing World archive. You can find said archive and listen again at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. The website is also where you can sign up for our free email newsletter. The subscription link is at the bottom of the webpage. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, Adobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.